Greetings, I'm John Haspel. Matt Branham and I founded Cross River Meditation Center in 2012. The following is a Dhamma class recording from our center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. Please support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Um, we're at the fifth class of our right view, understanding five clinging aggregates review. Um, the, 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 today's sutta is the Asutava Sutta, and it's another sutta on dependent and origination and the five clinging aggregates, similar to today's Tuesday, so Saturday. Um, but this is a little bit more specific. That, was, that sutta was more uh, a generalization. This is a little bit more specific. And there's a few interesting twists in here. The Buddha was at Savadhi in Jita's Grove in Athapandika's monastery. There he addressed those assembled. Friends, an uninstructed, ordinary person, might go disenchanted with their body, composed of the four great elements, earth, wind, fire, water. They might grow dispassionate toward their body and gain release from clinging to it or creating an identity over it. How does this occur? Due to aging and, dec and decline, the impermanence of the body, composed of the four great elements, becomes apparent to some people. In this way, the uninstructed ordinary person might grow disenchanted with their body and gain release from clinging to physical form. At, at some point, you might just resolve yourself to understanding what it, that as a consequence of having a human life, you're going to get old and die. That's not a profound understanding, though, and that's not understanding um, birth, sickness, aging, and death as the Buddha teaches it. Buddha continues. But what is often called mind, intellect, or consciousness, the uninstructed ordinary person is unable to develop disenchantment or develop dispassion towards this thinking, in parentheses, thinking rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths, and so gain release from it. How does this occur? Once ignorance arises, the mind, intellect, or consciousness is relished, revered, grasped after, and clung to by the uninstructed ordinary person. In other words, we believe our own, well, I'm not going to go that far. We believe our own thoughts, no matter where they might lead us, no matter how much trouble they might cause us in our lives, especially when we associate what what we're holding in mind with a tribal view. In other words, it, it gains um, validity and legitimacy because a, whole, a certain number of people think the same way. Well, that's just continued ignorance, isn't it? And so, again, we're going to get a little bit deeper into this in this sutta, but it is the mind that is more difficult to let go of because we are so enamored with our mind, with the way we think. And the way we think is us. It's how, it's how we don't, we only identify ourselves with the body through an ignorant mind that might do so. But we, as the Buddha says here, we, we, are, we relish our mind. We think it's something so special. But when it's used in an inappropriate way, meaning, meaning being inspired by ignorance of four noble truths leading to fabrication, we're lost. But if we can understand what the Buddha teaches, we gain control of our minds. That's exactly what he's teaching. And even that word control has a, it seems to have a nasty meaning today that we don't want to do that. But that's exactly what we want to do. It's our minds. Why shouldn't we learn how to gently control it? And so just be present for our life as our life occurs, free of conflict. The Buddha continues. They see this mind rooted in ignorance as this is me. This is myself. This is what I am. And once we believe that, once we believe our thoughts, that's, that can take us anywhere. And anything that might make us feel better, even though it's, it's obviously to our detriment or sometimes a little bit more subtly to our detriment, but because we think it and we like the idea, we're going to grasp after and cling to it. Unless we have a way of examining it. Is this really for me? That's where the Eightfold Path comes in. That's where the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path, if we can stay within the guard the guardrails, 
and not grasp after more, that it needs to be more. I need to be more. I need to have a, a special kind of practice or a special program or something else besides just the Eightfold Path. We're not practicing the Dhamma anymore. That's fine. Every human being is free to live their lives exactly as they want. But a Dhamma practitioner who is instructed by the Buddha, not an ordinary uninstructed person, uses the Eightfold Path in its limiting way. They see the mind rooted in ignorance as this is me, this is myself, this is what I am. From this self-referential view, the Buddha says, it is impossible to grow disenchanted or dispassionate towards the mind or to gain release from clinging to it. It would be more skillful for the uninstructed ordinary person to cling to their body more so than the mind as the self. Why is this? Because the body, composed of the four elements, can more easily be seen as impermanent and prone to decay. So it's important to start our understanding of impermanence right away. Instead of grasping after things that we might not even we might not recognize as a scheme or a strategy to ignore our own ignorance, but it always is. The Buddha says, what is identified as mind or intellect or consciousness is seen as one thing that continues to attach to another thing, meaning constantly clinging self-referential views resulting in confused views, and these are uh, bandied about in modern Buddhism, it's the only reason I'm, I've mentioned them, such as interdependence, interconnectedness, or interbeing. Nothing that the Buddha taught, and it has nothing to do in any way with dependent origination, even though that's how it's presented in most of modern Buddhism. Just as a monkey swinging through the forest grabs one branch after, the not, uh, after another, right? this practice, this meditation, this technique, this, this tribe, that tribe, in the same way, what is seen as mind, intellect, or consciousness constantly grasp after one thing or another. Some of us call that monkey mind. A lot of people that come here in the first place, one of the first things they say is they don't have control of their mind. Well, the Buddha is describing how that happens. Because we're so enamored with our intellect and we think that the thinking that is causing so much stress in our lives that got us looking for a way out, unless we recognize and abandon that mind, we're going to be like the monkey grasping one branch after another, after another. The next new thing, the next tribal-induced thing, instead of just practicing the Dhamma. The Buddha says, Dhamma attends mindfully and appropriately to dependent origination. Again, not interdependence, not interconnectedness, not interbeing. Dependent origination, which states, when this is, that is. There is an, there is an entire school of Buddhism that has made everything it teaches about this. And it's taught as this um, overarching, arcing, arching kind of mindfulness that, that somehow gets into the the cause and effect of everything, but using usually as an example, if you drop a, a pebble into the ocean in Japan, eventually it'll have ripple effects over the whole world. Well, that might be true, but so what? What did you learn from that? Nothing. Nothing that will do you any good or anything else. The, what the Buddha teaches dependent origination in this way, when this is, that is. From the arising of this, ignorance, comes the arising of that, suffering. And then he says, when this isn't, that isn't. Of course, we're still referring to ignorance. From the cessation of this, ignorance comes the cessation of that, stress and suffering. And then the Buddha says, in other words, and this is the uh, dependent origination now, from ignorance as a requisite condition comes fabrication. That's what the Buddha means when, when he says, when this is, that is. Not anything else. When ignorance is present, fabrications will arise. From fabrications as a requisite condition comes consciousness. So again, now this consciousness rooted in ignorance of four noble truths is rooted in fabrication. What does it mean? It means that we believe our own BS. From consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form, nama rupa. We talked a little bit about this last week. 
Nama Rupa is the Pali word for this. It simply means I am now identifying with this form as me. Everything that this form encompasses, meaning form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness, the five clinging aggregates. <clears throat> from consciousness as a requisite condition comes name and form. From name and form, from self-identification as a requisite condition, now comes the sixth sense base. Our five physical senses in the sixth sense of our consciousness. So because our, our thinking is rooted in fabrications, when we come in contact with the world, as we do through our sixth sense base, we're interpreting what's occurring through that mind rooted in ignorance. So what we're experiencing isn't reality. It's tinged by ignorance of four noble truths. From the sixth sense base as a requisite condition, now comes contact. From that contact as a requisite condition comes feeling. I come in contact with the world if I'm not in control of my mind, I'm either going to be um, thrown into a, a very distracted, blissful state because I just got what I wanted, or I'm going to be full of aversion because I got something I don't want. Or a third option is just my mind is rooted in ambiguity. Life is just boring. Life is blah. I'm not going anywhere. All three of those are miserable ways of living. From feeling as a requisite condition now comes craving. If what's, what has been um, developed in me as a, re, as a result of ignorance and it's pleasurable to me, I'm going to want more of it. And I'll try to organize my life in a certain way that I will get more of it, irregardless of how much stress and suffering it might bring. And the same is true of aversion. When I identify something that I don't want, I'll go to great lengths to try and not have that occur to me even though what I don't want might be aging or sickness or even considering death or the other things that the Buddha talks about, not getting what I want, getting what I don't want, being stuck in the ongoing personal experience of the five clinging aggregates. It's all stressful. It's all rooted in ignorance, but it's only one thing. We think we have these minds because we're so enamored that we have so much to deal with, so much to overcome, so much to process. Everybody loves that word today, process. I'm in, the, I'm in the process. No. We have one thing the Buddha teaches us. Recognize and abandon ignorance of four noble truths, and you're good to go. But if we're always distracting ourselves here and there, we, we don't have the ability to do that. From craving as a requisite condition comes clinging and maintaining. So now we're stuck in the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering, the five clinging aggregates. From clinging and maintaining as a requisite condition comes becoming. So now my mind clinging in fabrication can only give birth to something that is rooted in ignorance. That's what is meant here. The requisite condition now comes becoming. What? Becoming further ignorant. Each moment in our lives holds the potential to either turn our minds towards awakening, towards gaining full human maturity, or continuing ignorance. Ignorance. That's the only choice you ever really have. It might not be clear to us, and it probably won't unless you're actually practicing the Dhamma and developing concentration and right view and the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path. But that's all we have to deal with is ignorance of Four Noble Truth. And we know how to recognize it. Stress arises. When there's conflict in our mind, it's because we're stuck in eye-making. Always. A fully mature human being simply means they understand the first noble truth. There's dukkha. So we don't have to understand or analyze every aspect of a bad feeling I might have had since I was two years old. We just have to understand the effects of ignorance on our minds. And that's what this sutta is all about. It's what the Buddha's Dhamma is all about. From becoming as a requisite condition, right, from becoming further ignorant as a requisite condition, now comes birth. Of course, we're not talking about a physical birth. We're talking about what am I giving birth to in this moment? Because that's up to me. A lot of the things that will occur to us, each of us as individuals, we don't really have a lot of control over. Some of it we do. But all of it is dukkha if we cling to it. Even if it's 
the most wonderful experience in the world or becoming the world's most, the wealthiest man. If our mind is still a woman, if our minds are still rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, our minds are always going to be conflicted. But if we awaken, if we gain full human maturity through the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path and eliminate the cause of conflict in our minds, we do it to ourselves, then our minds are at peace. And once we have developed that, we'll never lose our minds again. It just takes that understanding. Unite your mind and your body and figure out how to get it there. And you don't get it there by grasping after the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You get it by practicing the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path. From birth as a requisite condition, right? Giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, comes sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. So it is really the reaction to birth, sickness, aging, and death that causes these other things, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. If there's no eye-making in the moment, there's none of that. But the, the Buddha concludes that statement by saying, such is the origination of the entire mass of confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. It all begins in ignorance of four noble truths, leading to fabrications, leading to a corrupt way of using our minds. It's not based on human reality that, yeah, there's stress and suffering, but none of it is personal. Now the Buddha says he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in, in suffering and say, okay, go and meditate and try to figure out the rest. He tells us what to do. Now, from the complete cessation of ignorance of four noble truths comes the cessation of fabrications. That's the true teaching on when this is, when this isn't, that isn't. When ignorance is no longer present, then I am no longer an ignorant person, meaning ignorant of four noble truths. From the cessation of fabrication comes a cessation of consciousness or ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance. Now our minds are, are, are pliable, they're supple. Our mind is, is soft and gentle. It's not grasping after or pushing anything away. It's just present for what is occurring. From the cessation of consciousness, ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, comes the cessation of name and form. The cessation of self-identifying with everything that's bouncing around, especially becoming so enamored with our own minds that we can't change it, that we always got to attach something to it or grasp something onto it to keep us distracted from facing our own ignorance. From the cessation of name and form comes the cessation of the sixth sense phase. So now that I've ended name and form, identifying with this, now my senses can be used as they were meant to be. And I can live as I am meant to be, as a reference point to what's occurring. No more grasping after, no more craving, no more clinging and maintaining an identity that I can't possibly maintain. But I'm going to do it anyway because it's, that's what I decided I need to be uh, in the world, what I need to show you. And most of us can't admit that what I need to show you is a fabrication, has nothing to do with me. And that's what the Buddha says to remind ourselves, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not what I am. We're just tricking ourselves with our thinking because we always need more. We always need more. We're not willing to settle into the limiting factors of the Eightfold Path. Well, we are, but many people are. From the cessation of name and form comes, comes the cessation of the sixth sense base or using our senses to further our own ignorance. From the cessation of the sixth sense base comes the cessation of contact. No longer using contact in the outer world in a reactionary way. No longer using contact, getting what I want feels good, not getting what I, what I want feels bad, as defining my life, always grasping after, always clinging to. There's going to be days when it has, what's the saying go? Ah, it was a, it's a good saying, I wish I could remember it. There's going to be days you get eat the bear, and there's going to be days the bear eats you. That's what I mean to say. We're going to have good days and bad days. Even if we're the, we're the most skillful Dharma practitioner in the world, there's a few people like that in here. Even if we are, there's going to be good days and bad days. Impermanence is there. Developing the Dharma to its culmination isn't escape from the world. It's a way of being fully immersed in the world without the need for this moment to be any different than it is. That's liberation, my friends. 
That's what the Buddha taught. We don't have to go any further than this. In fact, if we if we can stay right here, stay within the guardrails, very quickly we'll awaken. The Buddha told, told us in many suttas, he said, if you do this right for seven years, or even six or five or four or three or two, or even one year, or even a couple months, or even a week, if you do it right, you can awaken. If you don't, you won't. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. So now my feelings aren't all over the place. I don't, I don't need to always be looking for a, a crying room because I'm so upset with myself and what other people might look at me funny. We don't need it. We're in control of our mind. We're in control of our feelings. We're in control of our thoughts. We're in control of our body. And we can let our mind and our body do what we want it to do when we want to do it. Like get to Donna class. From the cessation of contact comes the cessation of feeling. From the cessation of feeling comes the cessation of craving. So now I'm almost completely undone the 12 link chain of dependencies that leads into this entire mass of suffering. From the cessation of craving comes the cessation of clinging and maintaining. All we got to do is continue to practice. And all of those things that we crave for and cling to will fall away. There's no analysis necessary. From the cessation of clinging and maintaining comes the cessation of becoming, in parentheses, further ignorant. From the cessation of becoming, in parentheses, further ignorant, comes the cessation of birth. When the Buddha awakened, many people have seen the statue you like this with his palm, left palm facing up to the sky, giving all kinds of meaning, and his right finger touching the ground. And what he's saying with that is, I have overcome the world. And he would always use the phrase, there is nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. He's emptied himself of ignorance. And he's, he's and his teachings, his dhamma, is for us to do exactly the same thing. Nothing different than what the Buddha did. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of sickness, aging, death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. Or I could read it this way. From the cessation of birth comes the cessation of reacting to sickness, aging, death, despair, sorrow, regret, pain, and all that. From the cessation of birth, from the cessation of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, comes the cessation of the entire mass of confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. Perhaps no more powerful words ever spoken by a human being to other human beings. From 2,600 years ago, he's reminding us how to do this, how to do what he did. From the cessation of birth, of giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance, comes the cessation of the entire mass of confusion, deluded thinking, and suffering. Then the Buddha says, understanding this clearly, and in parentheses, and in the proper context, the well-instructed disciple of the Dhamma grows disenchanted with form, disenchanted with feelings, disenchanted with perceptions, disenchanted with fabrications, and disenchanted with consciousness. That's the right word to use, disenchantment. Because we, we become enchanted with our own minds. Another way of saying that is we become hypnotized by our own minds. We're mesmerized by it. We think it's such a, a glorious vehicle for getting us anything we want. But the problem is it's our thinking that always gets us into trouble. It's our thinking that is prone to the first noble truth, to dukkha, to stress and suffering. Once we understand it and practice the radical acceptance of a Buddha, right? Dhamma practice, we learn to differentiate between the need to approve or just accept. There's a significant difference, isn't there? Most of us have it wrapped up that in order for me to accept something, I first have to look at it, judge it, approve of it, or disapprove of it. No. I'm simply a reference point to what's occurring. I don't have to approve or disapprove of anything. I don't have to keep getting my hands dirty. I am disenchanted with the world. I'm no longer enchanted by it. Disenchanted, they become dispassionate. Through dispassion, they, were, they are fully released from the five clinging aggregates. With complete, complete release, they know they are fully released. We know it. How do we know it? Because our minds are conflict-free. 
They know that giving birth to additional views rooted in ignorance has ended. That's power. That's inner poise. Excuse me. We'll know that we're good to go in the world, that we, that we can no longer do something that's going to harm ourselves or others. And both of those things are tied in knots in our minds, and we most of us don't even realize it. But there's a lot of fear in, in, in that kind of mind, that I might do something to hurt myself or another person. It means we can't trust ourselves in our own thinking. Or we simply overlook it or create strategies to overlook it, like two bottles of vodka a day or all the shopping we can do, all the sex we can do, all the pies we can eat, whatever it might be. Or it might be an endless intellectual pursuit that is our drug of choice. And that's what the Buddha is talking about, getting distracted with our own minds. Those that have done this know that a life well integrated within the Eightfold Path has been fulfilled and that the task is done. They know that clinging to the world has ended. It's the end of this. <laughs> clinging to the world has ended. Um, let me go. Uh, Mark, is that you? Or Raquel, I can't really tell. Not that you, you both look. Still can't tell. Is that you, Raquel? Can't hear you. I think that's it. Oh. Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. How are you, Raquel? I'm good. Thank you for the teaching. Wow. Wonderful topic. I um I will uh, observe the noble silence. Thank you. Thanks, Raquel. Is Mark next to you? Yes, he is. Hello, Mark. Thank you for the teaching. Um, very complex. Need to need some time to absorb that. Thank you. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, I'll observe sure. the, the silence. Yep. yep, take your time. That's what that's how Dhamma practice is. It develops just this way. Um, Charles, you I see you have your hand up. Uh, welcome to our Sangha. Hey, how's it going, everyone? How are you, Charles? Have have me and you spoken before? I don't believe so. Uh a work colleague. I explained that trying to open up um new understanding, so to speak. And uh, she passed me the link and I said, hey, I'm always open to a new experience. So joined, enjoyed. And honestly, I have been kind of lost in thought around this for quite a bit. So I'm going to have to take some more time to digest myself as well. Okay. Um, you've been to the website becoming-buddha.com? I've only looked at it for maybe 20 seconds before I joined the Zoom link. So I'll have to do a little bit more research after the fact. Yeah, spend a little time, start at the welcome page, and if you have any questions at all, just send me an email and we can connect. Awesome. Thanks for being so welcoming. Oh, thanks. Thanks for being being here tonight and being a part of our Sangha. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Hello, Jane. Hello, John. Please, Thank please. you for the teaching. Um, it's just all so true. Uh, um, you know, I was that person living a fabricated life and, uh, you know, my fabrication was I couldn't make mistakes and had to be perfect and just waiting for something bad to happen. And, yeah. and as I'm able to let go of that, I mean, life is much freer and, you know, it's makes quite a difference. So thank you. Yeah, you, you're so right, Jane. Would, I mean, I, I was I was born perfect, and that really hurts. But that's a that's a tough thing to maintain being perfect. Never could make a mistake. You hope somebody doesn't realize you're far from perfect. But it's much better to understand what it means to be a human being, and that dukkha arises and passes away. Thank you, Jane. Hello, Kevin. 
Hey, John. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thank you very much for the teaching. I don't have anything to add. Wow. Left you speechless. All right. Well, hit him good this week. Uh, does anybody mind being on camera? You don't have to be. Would you rather not be on camera, Bill? I, I can't see that well. Are you no, saying? No, I would prefer Okay. I'll sit here. So it's no, I'll just, just leave it the way it is. Hello, Tracy. Hi. Um, thank you so much for the teaching. Very timely, given my <laughs> ranting and raving when I came into class today. <laughs> you weren't <laughs> ranting and raving. Um, I definitely resonated with this idea of like disenchantment with consciousness because I'm experiencing like just being sick of myself a little bit <laughs> for the first time. Not, not like it's a new feeling of just being like, okay, like, you know, like here to, here we go again, you know? And I think that there is a, um, starting to detach Obviously, in meditation, I'm able to do that. Mm -hmm. But I'm starting to have moments of that in the day when things come up. And I think why I came into class so sort of frustrated is the more moments I have of that feeling, and then I lose it, and then I get frustrated because I'm finally having some peace and some ease through this practice. And I, going back to the teaching, even that I need to let go of. It's yes. like the feeling of pleasure, which I honestly, like, I never really felt pleasure before in my life until recently because of some other stuff that I'm working on. And so there's a part of me that really wants to feel that since I've never really felt it before. And it's like kind of awesome. But I also am seeing that that causes suffering on the other side too, the, the too much grasping at that also. It's like you can't, it comes and it goes. If you catch mm -hmm. it and hold it too tightly, it just starts to hurt again. Yeah. So I, this, this teaching was very, I mean, the, the way that I interpreted it anyway, it was very much what I'm going through. Mm -hmm. I hate to say process, but Okay. I'd love to be able to get to the point like where Jane is at, where I'm not going through anything anymore. I'm just present for what's occurring. And I think it'll come in time. It sounds like that is the promise of being here. So what do you think, Jane? You think it'll come in time? You caught me. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. When you, uh, one of the reasons why I say we all say be very gentle with yourself is relates to what you're talking about, because when you're developing and recognizing benefit from the Dhamma and then you have then Dukkha occurs, you think you're doing something wrong, but you're not. As long as you recognize it as what it is, it's just what's occurring in that moment. It's unpleasant or whatever it is about it. That's when you need to be very gentle with yourself and take a breath and say, just what's occurring because there's nothing personal about it unless you make it so analyzing <laughs> well yeah and it, it's one thing to look at something um with some circumspection it's another thing to start getting into root causes and all this stuff and, and how why did i act this way why do i talk this way what's the matter with me there's nothing wrong with you there's nothing wrong with anybody mm -hmm. except that you think you are there's something wrong mm -hmm. that you need to be different better smarter whatever it might be and we all do it but we can't popeye was right i am what i am we can't be anything more than what we are so why do we why do we stress over it because we don't understand that we think we should you know we think that life is a game about acquisition no life is as far as the buddha teaches and we practice here life is about simply understanding and being present for it and then we don't need ourselves or anything else to be any different than they are because we understand it. And you're getting to the point. But sometimes it is a little uncomfortable, isn't it? There's also the natural development of that wise restraint that when, in your mind, it goes off the rails a little bit, then instead of 
spiraling into what used to be a reaction to everything. Now there's like maybe a a more gentle restraint mm -hmm. and understanding and recognition, and then bringing it back more quickly. So yeah. that to me is that that encouraging thing that you do see developing in you. Yeah, that's through that concentration and your mindfulness of bringing it back, and that's that natural developing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I what he actually, said. Um, <laughs> I did something today that I don't usually do, and it was like that. Instead of like flipping out about whatever stupid thing was going on, mm -hmm. I just like laid in my bed for ten minutes. And I was like, I'm just gonna sit here and breathe. And then it passed. And then it always will. When you <laughs> yeah. find yourself being judgmental, harsh with yourself, just remember what that crazy bold guy always says: be gentle with yourself, because that's the way out. There, again, it, it's just a now, after I realized it's such a strange, a strange thing that human beings think that the way to make yourself better is to first beat the hell out of yourself. And somehow you will be in the next moment. And it never, ever works. It yeah. just doesn't. What works is saying, I am what I am. Nothing's personal. And you're getting there. So, Thank you. Thank you. Bill, you don't have to say anything, but we'd love to hear what, what you might want to say. I feel like my mind is divided and intellectually I, you know, I've gone over, you know, and over and over these teachings, other teachings, but the, um, there's another part of me that just isn't having any of it, you know, that it's, it's just saying, yeah, it's good for you, I'm going to hang out with your life, yeah. I'm going to cling and do what I have to do to survive or perpetuate the illusion. And uh, which is why I, I, you know, genre practice obviously will hopefully eventually um, allow me to, to come at that and depart me with wise attention. Wise restraint. Well, I, again, you figured that out pretty well. And all of that takes place by just continuing with Dhamma practice. So um, if you found something here that you think might be beneficial to you, I would just encourage you to keep coming. Again, go on the website, take a look at it. Let's use the guided meditations. And if you have any questions, just send me an email. We can have a talk about it. But, I mean, you're right. The first, the first time you hear this, especially if you're looking at other stuff in modern Buddhism, you're going to be conflicted. You know, a lot of my stuff is not going to um, be resolved in other other teachers' that's, teaching. That's, with respect, that's not where the, the, the conflict is coming from. It's very uh, psychological, just the conflict, mm -hmm. not in terms of which approach I want to take. I think I, what you're doing here is not wholly dissimilar from what some other Western Buddhists have wanted to do in terms of stripping away the metaphysics and, and just getting to the real core of the matter. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm fine with that. You know, I mean, uh, in fact, I, uh, you know, those, that's just more of my, you know, that's just other intellectual stuff that, that yeah. I mean, there's a suit in the Angatara and the Nikai about, the one who dwells in the Dharma. The Dhamma Vihara and Sutta. Yeah. That's like, you know, when I read that Sutta, it, it like gives me direction. You know, and, and I can see, you know, I can, you know, the other three part, the other three people that he mentions, the first three, and I want to get to that last one. I don't care how I do it. Right here. Really, I'm with Dhamma practice, with that, did you listen to the talk that I just gave on that? I, I could two or three classes no. ago. Well, you have a lot of stuff on, on the say. I'll, I'll look for it. Yeah, it was just a few weeks ago, wasn't mm -hmm. it? Yeah. Dhamma Viharan Sutta. So, yeah. And you're right. There, there's certain types of people in the world, and that's what the Buddha teaches. And no, you know, the other people aren't bad or wrong or stupid or anything. They're just different. And people are free to practice whatever they want. But if you want to practice the Dhamma, what the Buddha reiterates over and over again, what we reiterate over and over again, is you have to keep it pure. As soon as you d d subtract something or add something to it, 
the whole Dhamma falls apart. So keep yourself well focused. Give yourself a chance uh, to develop this. Uh, the Buddha often said, Ehepasika, which means come and see. But what he was saying is, if you're going to practice this and understand it for yourself, you have to come and see for yourself. You have to actually practice it. So again, I'm available to you. Our other teachers are always available to you, but I hope we see you again. Thanks, Bill. Zach, how are you tonight? Um, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for the teaching. Um, I read this on my own maybe two weeks back. And, uh, I think one of my favorite analogies in, in all the suttas is the monkey yeah. from branch to branch. Yeah. Um, we do that, don't we? Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's. I always kind of I forget what words you use, but like it's addictive. We're we're addicted to mind, mm. right? And, yep. Um, I'm overcoming that addiction. Isn't it great? It's pretty wonderful. Yeah. It's wonderful. Not even. I don't know if it's it's wonderful. pretty wonderful. Yeah, it is Tonight. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I remember when I was a kid sitting out in the backyard smoking pot and I'd have these incredible things that I'd think about. I'd think, wow, and I really got something. Of course, it wears off and I forget. Yeah, and I, I can't even remember what I did that. But we've become so enamored with this thing. I did, and it just kept getting me in trouble all the time. Thanks, Zach. Rom. Good job. Um... Yeah, every time I hear dependent origination, um, it's just this brilliant description yeah. of how the mind works and how it gets us into trouble if we if we don't practice if yeah. we don't if we don't come at it come at the world and ourselves with the right view. Yeah, uh, it starts with the basic fabrications and it, it goes off the rails further and further yeah uh, by the time you turn that around my feeling is not so much that you didn't have control over your mind but the mind is no longer out of control yeah and it just is an instrument that you use to deal with the world yeah and it can be, you know, can be a wonderful instrument. It's, it's a tool. Yeah, it works great for us, as long as as we as we understand how how the workings of the mind are. Yeah. And so we can understand the human mind is incredible, mm -hmm. but as soon as we become enamored with it, enchanted with it, now we've lost. But if we can just understand what it means to be a human being. That's incredible. You know, with a pure, bright, supple mind, not needing anything and taking care of what's in front. Thank you, Rob. David? Awesome. Thank you, David. <laughs> Thank you, David. Matthew? Good to be here, John. Thank you for this teaching. something about um, just listening to what everyone was saying tonight listening to the sutta this is the sutta yeah. um, and I think the Buddha said something about in the beginning of the sutta about um, not getting as you described it, not becoming enamored with my thought. Um, and that something that I found through this practice is, is that when I can recognize that I've gotten caught up in my thought and I can come back to the sensation of breathing in my body, whatever I was caught up in has been interrupted and now I'm here just with what's occurring. So, if we can recognize that we got caught up in thinking, and we can come back to the sensation of breathing in our body, which in turn interrupts that process and 
allows us to be present with what's occurring. Then, we don't try to fix, solve, change, or get rid of whatever comes up in our minds. We just let them come up. If anger comes up, then there's anger there. If frustration comes up, then there's frustration there. Those qualities of mind belong to impermanence. They arise, they take over our nervous system, do whatever they do for a period of time, and then they pass away and we're thinking about something else. So if we can recognize that we've gotten caught up in our thinking, then we can also recognize that whatever we're thinking is temporary. It's impermanent. It's not something that I need to get rid of or fix or solve or change. It, it's, it'll go away on its own. Doesn't mean it's not going to come back. But that that ability to to recognize that movement is that suppleness that the Buddha is talking about. That suppleness of mind to to think something, then follow it, and then recognize that I'm in a fantasy now. And oh, I, I, because I'm so interested in this fantasy, I completely forgot my body that's sitting here. Well, as soon as I take a breath and come back to my body, all of the intrigue of the fantasy is, is gone. And I'm not craving it anymore. I'm, I'm back here. And just what's occurring. And now I'm thinking about something else. And in the beginning, in two seconds, you're going to be in another fantasy. And you're going to find yourself there. And, and you're going to spin around there for a while until you recognize that you're caught up in your thinking again. And that you can come back by taking a breath and uniting your mind and your body. And then that's gone. And then 10 seconds later, you're in another fantasy. So you, you understand what I'm saying. It's as, as concentration develops and stability of the mind develops, the space between those, those times of, of being lost in fantasy after fantasy after fantasy after fantasy starts to spread out more and more and your mind becomes stable and you're not fantasizing as much <laughs> another word for fantasy is fabrication fabrication matt matt started with what, two three weeks ago and <laughs> this is this matt this is matt's acupuncture clinic and we've been we co-founded this thing 13 years ago He's been doing it a while, but it didn't take that long, did it? Not too long. <laughs> um, Charles has left us. Uh, so, Bill, I hope you continue with us. Like I said, if you want to reach out, just send me an email from the website. Um, are there any other questions or comments? No? Okay. We'll finish with Meta, as we always do. <coughs> So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and your body. And these are the Buddha's words on metta describing the qualities of an awakened, fully mature human being. This is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. 
They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. They are always mindful to not deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, having completed the path, does not give birth to another moment rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. Thank you all for a wonderful class tonight. Thank you, John. Peace. Thank you, John. Thank you, Jane. See you soon. Thank you for listening. If you find benefit here and to learn more about the Buddha's Dhamma, please support the continuing restoration and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com.